When planning a trip to Europe, it can be easy to overlook Belgium. It's so small that, you know, when you drive through Belgium, you close your eyes, you're probably out of it. But it's got so much to offer for being such a small country. Just ahead, we'll hear what makes one native son proud to be Belgian. What do you like to see when you travel? A New York activist for public spaces shares some of her favorite gardens to visit around the world. There are roses climbing over ruins. There are tangled branches everywhere. There is a stream coming from this mountain range that has the clearest water I have ever seen. And while you can't garden much in the Alaskan Arctic, we'll hear what life is like on the tundra of northwest Alaska. You could say it's a harsh country, but real rich with seals and salmon and caribou and muskox. Let's explore the world's amazing variety in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Not many people get to grow up in a sod hut with caribou herds as your neighbors. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Seth Kantner tells us what it's like living in the Alaskan Arctic, upriver from Kotzebue. And on the other end of the spectrum, author Katie Marin shares why a romantic garden designed by a princess in central Italy is one of her favorite places to visit in the world. Let's start the hour with our old friend Ferdi Mengi. He was raised in Belgium, and no matter where he's lived, in Europe and in the U.S., Ferdi will always be proud to be a Belgian. You know, when you're dreaming about traveling through Europe, Belgium often falls through the cracks. It's a little country, about 10 million people, the size of Maryland. It happens to be about the most brightly lit place in Europe. There's actually a term for it. NASA astronauts, when they look down from outer space, they see a bright, well-lit spot in Europe. They call it the Belgian window. There's lots to see in Belgium besides just bright lights from outer space. And I'm joined by Ferdinando Mengi, who was born and raised in Belgium. And for the last decade or so, he's been a tour guide. Ferdi, thanks for joining us. Hey, Rick. Ferdinando, when you think about Belgium, I mean, you're up against London and Paris and the Rhine River and the Swiss Alps. Why should somebody stop in Belgium? Well, Belgium is just a unique place. I mean, look at the size of it. It's so small that, you know, when you drive through Belgium, you close your eyes, you're probably out of it. (laughs) But it's got so much to offer for being such a small country. And uh, the cuisine is one of the top five in the world. Don't forget that. We have some great chefs, some great cuisine. So it's a mix between German and, and the French cuisine. Don't forget, we got one of the best beers. We got best chocolate in the world. So it's a place for uh, for foodies, really. Yeah, for foodies, for sure. A lot of people I've heard say you eat as well as the French and as hearty as the Germans. Absolutely, mixing it Absolutely, together because there. it's a, it's a mix between those two uh, cultures, and we are in the midst of it. Now, did the Belgians and Dutch used to be tied together politically? Yes, before because the unification for Belgium was eighteen thirty. 1830. Before that, it belonged to Holland for right. quite like 18 or 20 years. So what years. was the rationale for the division? What is the fundamental difference between Belgian and, and Dutch well, people? Th- they were Protestant, that's one. I mean, So that no was way. an issue? That was an issue. Belgium no, is mostly Catholic and the Dutch are... some percent. 90% of, percent of the Belgians would yeah. be Catholic families. See, Holland at the time was Protestant. Because, I mean, you think about the Belgians and the Dutch dividing, but Belgium itself is about 50%... French-speaking Walloons yes, and half yeah. Dutch Germanic-speaking. It's actually sixty-forty, so it's sixty Flemish and forty percent the Walloons, the French-speaking people. Now, you've, I, I read a quote from one of your prime ministers, and he said, "Belgium is a country united only by a king, the love of beer, and a soccer team." <laughs> so you do have this division problem. We do have, but we deal with it. You know, we 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 civilians get along, and sometimes those those politicians they. They bicker about things, the language barrier, the money divided in two. But it must be tough. 
It's not easy to do something like that, you know, to run a country where there's two languages, number one, now, two different mentalities. Brussels is, is it mostly French or mostly Flemish? Well, it's, it's both. That's not a problem. So we have three problems. We have the Loons, we have the Flemish, and we have Brussels Which as well. is like the dominant city, the dominant and it's city. split also. Yeah. And, and now, it's so fascinating because the headquarters yes. of NATO is there, mm-hmm. the headquarters of the EU. Yeah, it's all there. Now, I think one thing that the Flemish and the French people of Belgium have in common is a love of beer. Now, <laughs> last time I was in Belgium, I couldn't believe it. Half the Americans I met were there on a beer pilgrimage. Yes. Going to different beautiful pubs and drinking the beer. What do you have, like uh, 120 different varieties of beer? Well, even more than that. I think we have now, I think, 600 or 650 different kind of beers. Well, Yeah. I think I, I'm proud to say uh, that we have one of the best beers in the world. Well, I mean, I've been studying beers in Europe for like 30 years now, and mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I, I really good. say that the finest beer oh, it is. is in your home country. Uh, it is. It what is. is it about Belgian beer? I don't know. Well, this goes way back to like a thousand years when the monks were, there was a lot of monasteries in Belgium and those are the ones who came up with the idea. Water was contaminated and beer was something that was better to drink for the local people and they developed this into an art. So if you care about your kids, you'd feed them beer. Yes. I was a, I grew up, I'm 60 years old. When I grew up as a kid, my, my dad gave me beer. <laughs> I was one or two years old, not in Because they quantities. cared about your health. Well, they, they had the idea, drink a glass of beer. You went to a doctor. I've seen signs in the brewery. It said, drink um, Strafe Hendrik. It's good Strafe for your Hendrik. health. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's good. There's a stout that said it's made from horse blood. I'm not sure if that's true, but in the old days, maybe it was the case. Well, you got all these different kinds. Yeah. Generally, they're higher alcohol and, and yeastier than what yeah. you find in Germany oh, yeah. or it's France. Pretty, or it's pretty healthy if you keep it to the certain so let's quantities talk you drink. Trappist. That's a, a, that's a, a monk uh, That's a, a monk beer, the Trappist mm-hmm. monks. Yeah. And they've got great beer. You can buy it here in the States. Uh, the, yeah, the yeah, I've seen Chimay. it. Chimay. Chimay, Grimbarge. Uh, oh, I love yeah, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, beautiful. Tell me about the Lambex. Lambic, that's a, that's a Brussels beer. Huh? It's really brewed in Brussels. Uh, Lambic is also a cherry beer. They have different flavors, different fruit flavors. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the, the, the one I like from Lambic is the cherry one. Okay. I mean, I'm more of a light, light. I, I drink beer, but in small quantities. But I like that kind of sherry-flavored beer, which Lambic is one of them. Now, what about the very strong ones? They got sort of devilish names. Oh, the Duval. That's, Duval. A, that's a eight, almost 9% of alcohol and. <laughs> One bottle of beer. And let me tell you, that's a strong beer. If you drink five of those, I guarantee you. Other beers like Judas, Satan, Judas, Lucifer. Yeah, I mean, they really go for that hellish strong fruit. beer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all that stuff. And there's this tradition, quack. Oh, the quack, It's that's interesting. The quack, it's named after the glass they pour it in. It's like one of those laboratory glasses. They have like kind a of beaker. A, a beaker, exactly. And when you drink it, the beer quacks. It makes a sound. It makes a sound of quack, 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 quack. That goes in there because oh, it's a narrow it. neck. That's why they call it the quack. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking about Belgium with Ferdinando Mengi, who was born and raised in Belgium. Ferdi, when you think of Belgian cuisine, you think of flamse frites. Ah, flamse frites. Fren- French fries. Yes. Of course, they don't call them French fries in no, Belgium. No, we call them frites, just fries. Fries. Or flamse would be Flemish, right? Yeah, flamse is Flemish. Yeah. There's actually a museum in Bruges all about yeah. fries. Yeah, you can go in there and on the end of the tour, you can get little fries to eat. Chefs are evangelical about their fries. I mean, they just love these fries. I've been I've been in the kitchen and you fry it twice, right? Twice. The first time you fry them on, on a lower heat, uh-huh. like 160 Celsius. And the second time you fry them, you let them cool off a little bit. And then you fry them on a 180, just 20 degrees higher just to brown them. First to cook them and then to brine. Oh, to so first them. cook it. And yeah, then first to it make nice the brown. potato tender. And it's yeah. an art. I mean, you, you, you choose is. a place according to the quality of the oh, plums yeah. and fries. It depends on the potato. It depends on the oil, what you use. What do you dip your fries in? 
Mayonnaise, of course. I always tell my people, you just eat fries with mayonnaise. I'm sorry. I, I try to do what the locals do, but dipping my fries in mayonnaise. Yeah, that's, that's the way it is. I mean, now, not everyone. When, when you order, uh, when you're going to uh, going to get a classic Belgian meal, it might be mussels and fries. Yes, that's that's our national dish, I think. They, Come, comes they in a big bucket, right? Big black bucket. They're always black, but they come about two pounds in a portion. So, And and I think a very good tip for a traveler is to, you'll look like a local if you use a mussel shell yes, to pinch exactly. out the mussel from the You know, other. I'm a local. I can say it. I was born there. I never use it. I use my fork. Oh, that's you do? It. Yeah. I like easy. that because they have this wonderful little mussel that lets yeah, you uh, yeah, pinch yeah, them. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, as a good Belgian appreciating mussels, you avoid mussels when the season's wrong. Well, this was in the old days. I mean, mussels were harvested from the open water. Okay. They had them open in the North Sea. But now they're far more farm-raised. They're more controlled, and they can really control ah, the growth of So you of don't mussels. have that by them in season anymore? There is a little bit of that, but okay. not as intense as it once was. It in the old days, it was only thing. three months, September, October, November, and maybe December, okay. and that was it. Okay. Now we have, we have pretty much eight months out of the year. Now, Brussels is the dominant city with 2 million people. You've got other cities to stop at. What would you recommend people be sure to visit when they're in Belgium? I would definitely go to Bruges. Uh, that's for sure. One of uh, our proud cities, I think, of Belgium because of the architecture you see, the beautiful canals. You feel like you're kind of a simil- not similar to Venice, but kind of in that order. You have the canals. And the interesting thing about Bruges, B-R-U-G-G-E-S, mm-hmm. the interesting thing about Bruges is it's so beautiful today because it was such an important trading center in its heyday, four yes. centuries ago or something like this. Yes. For and the hops, uh, huh? For the hops, is that of right? Course. For the beer. Hops made it rich. Hops made Bruges what it is today. My Again, goodness. it goes back to the monks and people knew when they drink beer, they will feel better, they will be happier, and they wouldn't get sick. Except for a hangover maybe, but that's about it. And my favorite uh, brewery tour in Belgium is in Bruges. Yes. And my favorite little pubs that are so famous for their oh, beer. Gosh, the, yeah. the conviviality in those pubs mm-hmm. is just incredible. And then when you want to just kind of have a little quiet time, you go to a Begenhof. What is a Begenhof? Begenhof is one of those begins, we call them. Those were women. They lived kind of like nuns, but they never took vows. So they were usually widowers or single women. So there was an abundance of women back yes, in the old days because so many men, men were off, running died off to or war out, went to war for sure. So how does society absorb those? They have a little kind of a convent where Beautiful women will to go. visit. And then didn't they earn their keep by praying for rich people? Yes, they took uh, so they get some a, offerings. A, a humble little wage, yeah, and then yeah. they spend hours a day just praying for rich people's yeah. souls. They do the lace and all that and stuff. The lace. Right? the lace, yeah, it was started with the begins. Beautiful, you know? beautiful place. So you can check out those Beginhofs, the Beautiful the to begins. visit. There's one actually open for the public that you can go and visit and see how those uh, uh, women lived. Tour guide Ferdi Mengi is sharing the pleasures of his home country of Belgium right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. We have an email from Julie in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Julie writes, uh, My church choir traveled to Brussels, Bruges, and Ghent last summer. What a surprise and delight Ghent was. This city is off the standard radar of travel destinations. It's just wonderful. Tell us about Ghent. Ghent is a city that uh, a lot of people don't go, and it's a shame. But you know what? Ghent is in the shadow of Bruges because it's not that far. It's only like 50 kilometers of distance between it's the It's midway cities. between Brussels and yes. Bruges, right, on the train. So you can stop there. There's probably two well, trains gosh, an hour. Well, you're at the mm. St. Peter's Station. You, you take a train right in the center of, of Ghent. You walk around. You have this beautiful architecture, also a very rich past you can see. But, again, it's in the shadow of Bruges. It, it's kind of Bruges in the rough. Exactly. Bruges is so, it's, it's a little bit well, expensive. Known. It's so touristy and cutesy. It's almost like a fantasy world. But you go to Ghent, and you're going to get, you a know, really working city. A with, working with city. Working city, exactly. 
Patrick from Indian Town, Florida, emails us, and Patrick says, I visited my brother while he was a student in Belgium. I love the country, especially the food. The chocolate was the best, not to be missed. <laughs> what is it about Belgian chocolate? I, you know, that that goes way back in time. I think we were just had the best, I mean, I would say a cook or a chef who, who, who could make the best chocolate. So we are sort of inventors of the good chocolate. I mean, they just did it right. And each each town has its local chocolatier, oh, gosh, and yes. everybody has their favorite maker. Mm-hmm. I noticed that on a hot day, they actually shut down because they don't put a lot of wax in the chocolate to survive oh, yeah, the heat. Oh, yeah, it melts easily. And it's interesting that, you know, when if I go to a pastry shop and I buy some sort of a pastry, you want a fresh pastry. But I never really thought about fresh chocolate, but actually Belgians like their chocolate to be fresh. Oh, yeah, you go into those little tiny shops, and they're usually not big. Is that true that you are aware that it's if it's been oh, made it's in the last couple of And you can of actually, when you, you go to Bruges, you see those chocolate yeast, that's how they call it. Yeah. And you can see how they make them in the back. Now you can see how they put them in little molds and stuff like that. So it's in, very interesting to see and definitely to taste, that's for sure. You sound like you're proud to be a Belgian. I am proud to be a Belgian. Of course I am. It's a small country. It's a small country with a distinct proud. culture and a, and a way of life. Yeah. People maybe don't know that much of the country, but if you talk about chocolate, beer, lace and stuff, they know exactly. Then he goes, Bel- hey, I do know Belgium. I do know All Belgium. right. Well, let's not miss Belgium on our next trip. Ferdinando Mengi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure. We'll hear about the challenges and rewards of living in a completely different world in Arctic Alaska in just a bit. But next, author Katie Marin returns to Travel with Rick Steves to recommend some of the great gardens you can visit around the world. Alfred Austin was the poet laureate of Britain just over a hundred years ago, and he once wrote, We come from the earth, we return to the earth, and in between, we garden. During the pandemic, Katie Merritt got acquainted with how the garden at her own recently purchased country home in Connecticut could become a source of healing. She includes a generous serving of beautiful photos and inspiring literary quotes in her book called Becoming a Gardener, What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living. Katie served as chair of Friends of the High Line in New York City. That's the park that converted more than a mile of elevated railway into a walkway filled with greenery. And she's long advocated for public spaces where anyone, with or without a garden of their own, can catch their breath and enjoy the fragrances and beauty nature brings us each season. Katie's back with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about some of her favorite public gardens around the world. Katie, welcome back. Rick, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. So, Katie, you have written so eloquently about your own garden in Connecticut as kind of a countryside refuge from New York City in a certain way. And I know that you've traveled a lot and have been inspired by other gardens, both in the United States and overseas. And it's nice to have you with us just to share your thoughts on great gardens so people who want to add a little extra dimension to their own gardens might also be inspired. Would you mind if I just had a few minutes to pop some gardens uh, to you and let us know why they inspired you? Delighted. All right, because I know one of your favorite places on the entire planet is in Italy, the Garden of Ninfa. What is it about that garden? Ninfa is, to me, the most magical place on Earth. And in fact, I, at that point, not a gardener at all, described it as such. And in fact, I used the word paradise for the first time in my life. But I've paid attention, and in my research for this book, I've noticed other writers have talked about just that, that it is their most magical place, and they've used specifically the word paradise. It's a medieval town at the base of a mountain range in central Italy. What is it near? How would we find Ninfa? 
It's about two hours southwest of Rome. Southwest, and okay. It's an it's a relatively easy drive. It does take a while to get there. Yeah. The first time I visited, I was with my family. Our children were on spring break, and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm forcing them to drive two hours outside of Rome on a day when they love Rome to go see this garden. And when we arrived, this very friendly dog greeted us, and we walked into a dream setting. It was extraordinary. It's an old medieval ruin that then lay in wreckage for hundreds of years. It wasn't until the early 20th century that the family that had always owned it started to renovate it, and they've been renovating it now for about 100 years. It's become a little bit better known recently, but it's still a relatively hidden gem. Again, this town is Ninfa, N-I-N-F-A, a couple hours south of Rome, and it's a garden that's growing in a ruined medieval town. What a evocative kind of setting, I would imagine. It is. There are roses climbing over ruins. There are tangled branches everywhere. There is a stream coming from this mountain range that has the clearest water I have ever seen. In fact, there was a hut there, a little thatched hut, right by the stream where the Italian writer Giorgio Bassani wrote The Garden of the Finzi Contini, a very haunting and moving book that then ultimately became a famous movie. Another garden I know that you know and appreciate is much easier to get to, simply right downtown Paris, Luxembourg Gardens. That was my first favorite place in the world until I discovered Ninfa. And I first went there on my first trip to Paris when I was 23. How do you appreciate Luxembourg Gardens? Walking in there, there's a majesty to it with the beautiful Senate building and those huge urns and the classic structure of the paths and the almost boulevards and the flowers and the boat basin. So I think of it as having a very timeless, classic beauty. At the same time, I think there's a very everyday humanity to it. The first time I went there, it was a cold December morning, but it was very sunny. And I remember loads of people sitting on those little chairs, they're very yeah. iconic chairs, surrounding the boat basin. Yeah. And they were simply enjoying the day and soaking up the sun. So it was the combination of the two that at that time, when I was 23 years old, brought me to tears. And I can't remember anything bringing me to tears before that. I, I love realized that. then how much I loved it, and I've gone every single time I've been to Paris. Hey, when I was looking through your book, Katie, I kept thinking of Beatrix Potter's cottage up in Cumbria in North England. I guess there's something about um, the sort of messy English untended gardens that are, uh, they have such such a personality. What is your experience with Beatrix Potter? Do you know how that would be sort of connected to what I saw in your book? I love that idea. In fact, I have two books about Beatrice Potter's own garden, uh-huh. and I've read a bit about her. I find her totally charming and wonderful. But in particular, the garden in Peter Rabbit is a character in the book. And I think knowing about Beatrice Potter and Peter Rabbit made me realize how important gardens can be in a book. And for instance, you think about the secret garden. It's all about a magical garden. Yes, And I think when we look back, there are lots of books that we've all enjoyed where the garden actually plays a major role. 
Katie Marin's taking us to some of the great gardens of Europe and America right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of Becoming a Gardener, What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living. Let's talk about gardens in the United States and, and what we can learn about American-style gardening. There's a museum in Boston that you like, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Yes, that's right. And when I started to think about doing this book, my imagination started to roam. And I realized everyone needs to tap into their imagination to create a garden because, really, what do you do with a plot of earth? You can do whatever you want. So it really comes out of you. And I thought back to places I'd been that I loved, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum totally being one of them. Uh, I went to college outside of Boston, and Mm -hmm. I would go there. I'd make a special effort all on my own one afternoon here and there, and several times over the course of a school year, to go see that garden. Mm. And I'd take subways and a train and a bus, and then a long walk over the Fenway Park field to get to this Italianate Renaissance building Mm -hmm. because she had copied that years and years ago. But the most amazing part was this interior courtyard, Mm. which was full of flowers at any time of year. And I was spellbound by that. Yeah, you wrote how it was an ideal place to be alone to collect your thoughts. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Katie Marin. Katie's been a fixture with the arts and cultural organizations in New York City now for years. She wrote for Vogue. She's been on the board of such city giants as the Met, the New York Public Library, the Friends of the High Line, and the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. But moving to a country house in nearby Connecticut presented Katie with a new opportunity to develop her skills at feeling rooted at home. Katie wrote a book about it. It's called Becoming a Gardener. What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living. Katie, it's so nice to have you and to share some thoughts on gardening that we can splice into our upcoming travels. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that you enjoy the Garden Museum in London. I've never been there. It's just across the river from the Houses of Parliament. You can walk there in 10 or 15 minutes from Big Ben. And it's a history of garden design. I think it's the first museum of its kind in the world, the Garden Museum in London. It is, and it's it has a very visionary, kind leader named Christopher Woodward, who's very enthusiastic about the garden and the museum. They do very innovative programs and have amazing exhibitions of all sorts. I'm continually not surprised, but pleased by the originality of what they do there. They are also near housing districts where People maybe are not as privileged as elsewhere in London, and they do a lot for the people of the neighborhood. It's very moving what they do for all sorts of people. And, of course, what better place in England to have a garden museum? It's on my list. And, you know, I got to say, just because of the chores of researching and writing my guidebooks, I've had to visit the great countryside gardens in England and in Ireland and in Wales and they are always worth the time and trouble to visit. The English and the British and the Irish, they just really know how to put a garden together over the generations and then share it with the public in a beautiful way. I agree with you. In fact, in my reading for my book, I read that in England, gardening is a religion. And the Garden Museum in London fills a church, literally. (laughs) That's true. Hey, Kitty, we've been talking about gardens all over the place, but basically you're a New Yorker. And you were the expert, the go-to person on public spaces, green spaces, gardens in New York. What are some of the 
green spaces that you remember most fondly in New York City that we should have on our list next time we visit? There are many parks in New York City, which I think is one of the city's great pleasures. In fact, many years ago, there was the theory that every human being should be able to be a 10-minute walk from a park. So there are lots of small parks, but hands down, the most amazing one to me of all is the High Line, which is only now just over 10 years old, and it's extraordinary. As many people know, it's a ribbon of pathways, really a couple of stories higher than the street level of New York, winding through a promenade, in essence, in the sky of the most beautiful, luscious planting. Mm. And someone called it an urban trail. That is pure, pure joy to be there. Now, this is an elevated train line that's no longer used for trains. Isn't that right? That's absolutely right. And can you access it at any number of places? You can access it every several blocks. Oh, and So it's, it's really very easy to hop on and hop off, almost like a train in that regard. And it's a nice hike. I remember walking it, and it's quite long. How long is it? It's in a mile and a quarter. A mile and a quarter. So that's a good walk and a good slice of life in New York City. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. And I would imagine it was gratifying work for you to be on the board of the High Line. Very. Yeah. Very. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and Katie Marin's our guest. She's written a sumptuous book called Becoming a Gardener and outlines the life lessons digging in your own dirt can provide. Katie's also written about the value of public spaces in her earlier books, City Squares and City Parks. We have a link to her work and her earlier interviews with us at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, I, we've got a couple more minutes, Katie, and I'd love to talk about a few gardens that I know you would like to visit that are on your list and, and why places you've uh, yet to go yet. In Normandy, there's a garden called Le Jardin Plume. What appeals to you about that? The fanciful nature of the grasses, which in fact I came to appreciate through the High Line, the way they blow in the wind. This garden was created by one couple over the last 20 or so years, and it has not only these wonderful loose grasses, but a very unusual hedge, sort of of undulating waves, and at the same time, a very strict classical structure. And as I think about this, I realize that I clearly appreciate the combination of the classical and the informal. And as we were talking about the Luxembourg Gardens, that would be the case here as well. As you were talking about grasslands, it reminded me the National Museum in Edinburgh in Scotland has a, a roof that is totally filled with the various grasses you'll find when you mm. go around Scotland. And it's a beautiful experience to be on the rooftop and to be able to actually walk through, you know, rummage through, uh, explore your way through all the grasses that, that you find in, in the countryside. That must be very beautiful. It's nice. Also, you want to visit a, a garden in the Netherlands, the Piet Odolf Gardens. Why would that be? Yeah, in that sense, I'd like to visit his garden because it's so well known. There have been books on it. He and his wife have worked on it as basically an experimental bed for many, many years. But also, in particular, because I admire him so much, as do so many people, but in particular for me, because he's the garden designer behind the High Line. Ah, well, he that would came be the connection. Yeah. And talked to us once, and he showed us schematics of what he had done. And he somehow manages to pack so many plants into a square foot that it's almost hard to comprehend. And yet it all looks so natural. 
Ah, so you could pick up some tips, I suppose, for your own home garden after visiting Pete Oldulf's gardens in the Netherlands. I'd love that. Yeah. And then you want to go to uh, Derek Yarman's garden in Kent on the English Channel, Dungeness? Yes, because it's so stark and so unusual. He was a filmmaker that is revered by many people. And I've certainly read about this very bare land with this funny garden popping up with all sorts of rocks and stones and plants here and there surrounding his cottage. And again, it's totally free. Anyone who drives out there can wander around it and look at it. And it's just struck me that it would be so unusual. I'd really like to go see it. And then finally, you want to visit uh, Thomas Jefferson's Gardens at Monticello in Charlottesville, Virginia. Yes, and that's a lot to do with his vegetables. He was a very, very highly regarded vegetable gardener. In fact, he was some sort of a genius and an inventor. He searched out exotic varieties of peas or kidney beans or whatever the plant and hybridized them to create new ones. But he has an expansive, expansive garden full of healthy vegetables. And since my garden is a kitchen garden, coming out of early American gardens and my feeling for the heritage of America, I really wanted to go see this extraordinary garden. In fact, Katie, in your book, Becoming a Gardener, you actually quoted Thomas Jefferson, and, and he, he wrote, the greatest contribution one can make to their society is to bring it one more useful plant. And apparently mm-hmm. he did a lot of that. And you can be inspired by that at his gardens today at Monticello. That's right. Katie Marin, so nice for you to join us and share your passion and your expertise in gardens. And I know that a big part of your life in the last couple of years has been to buy this place in the peaceful countryside of Connecticut and to create a garden that gives you an extra dimension to your life, a garden that you can you can become rooted. And with all of the sightseeing and appreciating and, and study that you've done for gardens over the years, how has all of that exposure to great gardens been influential as you have built the garden, planted the garden, raised the garden of your dreams in Connecticut? I think visiting gardens and beautiful gardens is inspiring just for what they can offer. When I think about the gardens that I've loved and over many years from Luxembourg Gardens to NINFA to the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum, they're very grand. And my garden is very simple and small. So in that sense, there was no direct correlation between the two. But the sense of natural beauty is there in their gardens or in my garden. You know, it's so beautiful to page through your book and see how important all of this um, celebrating of nature through your gardening, uh, how important it's been for you. Can we just wrap it up with a thought from you on gardens, grand or intimate, grand like at a palace or intimate like the one you just created in your backyard? What has digging taught you about life, about living? It's taught me about so many of the essential qualities of a good life, from happiness to sanctuary to beauty. Most of all, I think, a stronger connection to nature. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, rooting myself to the land. And I think as we, we all want that in some way or other, making a garden has certainly done that for me. 
Katie Marin, you are an inspiration. Thanks for writing your book, Becoming a Gardener, What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living. And best wishes. We'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks again, Katie. Thank you very much, Rick. You can listen to Katie Marin's earlier visits with us on Travel with Rick Steves from the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. It's a completely different kind of beauty on the treeless slopes of northwest Alaska. Hear what that's like next on Travel with Rick Steves. Its future is uncertain. The lands that host wild caribou herds in northwest Alaska, where Seth Kantner grew up, appear at first glance to be a harsh and indifferent landscape. But it can nurture and sustain you, as it has done for the wildlife of the region for millennia, if we don't get in the way. Seth was raised in a homemade sod hut and learned to live off the land by being observant and resourceful, just like the ancestors of his indigenous Inupiat neighbors have done for centuries. Seth explores the natural and human history of life on the tundra in his latest book called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. It includes a bounty of beautiful photographs he's taken of his Arctic surroundings. Seth joins us now from his home studio in Kotzebue, Alaska. Welcome. Oh, you're welcome, Rick. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm fascinated by this idea that living on the tundra in the Arctic seems harsh but can nurture and sustain you. What is uh, a perception that we might get wrong about the harshness of the tundra, the frozen tundra? Pretty much everything, I guess. I remember as a kid, people had this idea of snow igloos and uh, eating uh, raw fish, I guess, was kind of summed it all up and or spit freezing before it hit the ground. And it was kind of a strange dichotomy because I was born in a in what we call a sod igloo, you know, built in the ground and in a tunnel mm-hmm. and old style life. And we slept on caribou skins and the, the place was small and low to keep the heat around you and, and dark and mice on the floor, et cetera. But outside was the land and kind of every day, the season and weather and each day decided sort of what my family did as far as gathering wood or setting nets under the ice or mostly those early years gathering uh, caribou meat, caribou skins, caribou sinew for thread, and on and on, a lot to do with caribou. So, yeah, because, you know, judging from the cover of your book, A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou, it looks like the world is, uh, it's the world of the caribou. I mean, it looks like a a big community square, and they're all just hanging out there gossiping. But uh, you shared that you shared that terrain with them, and uh, you you learned to find sustenance in the Arctic environment. And also, there's a a pretty strong heritage from indigenous people on on how to how to be one with the environment. What kind of lessons can you learn from the indigenous people in this land? Historically, there was you know vast amounts of knowledge about every plant and every lake and slough and otter and loon and and all that, a lot of that is gone with, you know, more and more technology every day coming north. Mm-hmm. I think there's still a, quite a lot to learn from, for me anyway, being out with with nature itself, the harshness and the, um, I kind of hesitate to say it, but the, the uncaringness of nature and at the same time, the, the providence. It's certainly exciting in the fall when it's a a good cranberry season, or it's exciting when the tundra's been um, empty of animals and suddenly thousands of caribou are coming towards you. It's uh, Those are big feelings of not just connection, but plain old food and uh, 
provisions to survive. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, because I feel like, you know, everything is kind of hunkered down when the world is white and covered with snow, but then the day does come when the flowers come out and the and the insects and the bees and the birds and the and the greenery and the and all of a sudden it's like a you almost feel like there should be an orchestra you know singing some festive uh, anthem as life oh, comes back in this there spring. totally is an orchestra of uh the migratory birds you know in winter we we forget there's such things as insects and and most birds and flowers and even the idea of water being wet is uh <laughs> not there you know everything's frozen and so spring is this birthing of a new season but you're basically sitting in one spot in your along the river or along the coast and then uh, along comes a different a different landscape that's so different i i equate it like winters like antarctica and summers like africa with uh, the billions of mosquitoes and all the birds that show up and the the greenery and then back to that uh, idea of water being wet again yeah I would think that insects are kind of a welcome thing when spring hits, and you feel oh well, you this, would uh... you would think wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's a romantic approach. Okay, so but but the birds come back. Let's say that's a nice thing. Oh, it's a huge thing. Yeah, the air is yeah. full of. Um, and I always refer to uh, the tur- birds just jokingly as tourists because in winter there's ravens and uh, chickadees and and gray jays huh. and a few other you know snowy owls and then. They're all putting in their time, and then suddenly here come all these tourists, the geese and ducks and um, sparrows. Is it a short season? When does the spring actually come? With climate change, we're still holding on to spring as pretty accurate. May, mid-May, and ice down here on the coast goes out in in June. Okay, so so we, we say April showers bring May flowers. You would say May showers bring June flowers. Yep, pretty much, yep. There you go. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Seth Kantner, and he's written a book called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou, sharing his experience living um, in a quite a remote location on the far, what, northwest coast of Alaska. Seth, can you explain to us about your hometown, Kotzebue? Um, it's not my hometown. I grew up about uh, 150 river miles east of here. Then the closest village was the Inupak village of Ambler, a couple hundred people, about 25 miles from the, the Sad Igloo where I was born and raised. Now I'm on the coast maybe half the year, commercial fishing, and that's, mm-hmm. that's out of Kotzebue, which is low, windblown country, kind of north of that. On the coast. On the coast, north of that piece of Alaska that almost touches Siberia. So we're kind of north of the okay. Seward Peninsula. I guess you could say it's a harsh country, but um, real rich with seals and salmon and caribou and musk oxen. And and nowadays, moose have moved north. And I think there's been times in the past when disparagingly people talked about Kotzebue being the armpit of Alaska. But I'm noticing that more and more people are realizing it's a pretty nice town with really great country around to um, spend time in. My sense would be it would be a town that has a little more commercial heft than its population might merit because it serves a, a vast area as a place to come and get your provisions and your tools and so on. Yeah, Amazon.com has changed some of the way provisioning works in Alaska, for sure. But yeah, this is referred to as a hub town with 10 villages, far-flung villages served by Kotzebue. And a certain amount of that service now has to do with like social and health and 
Mm-hmm. And now there's park service and fish and wildlife and fishing game. And, and so Kotzebue is a hub town for those agencies. Seth, you know, this whole idea of a thousand trails home, living with caribou, give us a sense of the, the majesty of the vast herd and uh, what it's like to be living with it. The herd comes and goes with the seasons, which the migration in the fall is uh, used to be uh, September and October and, and then trailing off in no- November. And it's like an arrival of a new nation flowing around your doorstep. And in this it's a mobile case, nation, it's a it's yeah. a nation that migrates. I grew up where if we saw humans, people, it was rare, and we uh, were pretty excited and ran and told my parents. And you know, if we saw a grizzly bear, we would maybe not bother running and telling my parents. So the caribou were companions, and and still are for me. And then if you spend enough time out with them, you see. Uh, you see all sorts of things. You see them running uh, away from fake news and you see them blocked by uh, open water and you see them struggling to get out of uh, after falling through the ice and you're you're kind of seeing yourself. What a concept, more... running away from fake news. So some there's some <laughs> rustle in the herd and, and it's like a false alarm? Uh, yeah, it's just uh, constant, really. Um, ah. Caribou can arrive at a, a river and there's uh, indecision, there's waiting for a leader. Usually the herd is led by females. And then somebody starts crossing the ice and then there's a batch of fake news. Either a clump of ice falls or a eagle flies over and the, everybody flees back through this terrifying thin ice. And, yeah. and then they start again. And um, if you spend your days observing that, which I do doing photography and or hunting too, you get to... Uh, sympathize with this incredibly tough life these animals endure every day. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Alaska writer Seth Kantner. In 2004, Seth's debut novel, Ordinary Wolves, won a number of awards. He was named one of the nation's top emerging writers. His 2015 title, Swallowed by the Great Land, explored the duality that comes with growing up in the Arctic. His latest title is called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. It profiles the sweeping changes impacting the lives of the Inupiat people of northwest Alaska and the western Arctic caribou herd. His website is sethkantner.com. Now, for a, for a white Alaskan to be living off the grid, surrounded by indigenous culture, you must pick up a respect for the caribou from your indigenous neighbors and also skills about how you can live off the caribou. Traditionally, and even for you, how does the caribou contribute to survival? That's changed a lot. If you go back a hundred or more years, the skin of the caribou is, uh, they have hollow hair, very warm, but prone to wearing out quickly. So it was incredibly important for survival to have those furs to wear when you were out hunting other caribou or, or wolves or bears or whatever. And then, of course, the fat, everything to do with survival, you know, 100 years ago had to do with the fat for dog teams and for people for surviving the cold. So caribou were incredibly important. Yeah, that would be a lot easier because you can just order your food, I suppose. Uber Eats delivering. Uh, But uh, you, you wrote in your article, fat meat made us feel safer. Yeah, there's no exaggeration there. And that's still part of the culture. There's a lot that's faded and disappeared as modernity has flooded north and made everything so easy in many ways, maybe not psychologically. And so caribou now 
I would say that psychologically, um, caribou have taken on a larger importance. And then as far as just sheer survival, that that has dropped away. Yeah, well, the caribou are struggling to survive. And I would imagine the indigenous peoples are also struggling to survive, at least with their traditional ways, uh, against climate change and development. What is the story for the, can I say Eskimo, or what is the proper term? Well, um, Inupac is the, the group that nowadays there's this drift towards uh, Eskimo being a maybe bad word, but the people I grew up with, and they still call themselves Eskimos and prefer that. If they call themselves Eskimos and if they prefer that, then it would be okay for people beyond that community to call them Eskimos too, I suppose. Yeah, you could run into uh, problems in the larger metropolitan areas like Seattle or Anchorage with with somebody upset with that term, but if you went to a village, you probably would never have that issue. It's nice people are coming to their rescue who don't understand them very well. <laughs> yeah, it, there's a lot of confusion now with that, and then, you know, loss of culture. And then you talked about development. That's a huge concern for not just the culture here, but also the, the land and animals, and, and then, of course, connection between the culture and the animals. If if you have development, you're kind of destroying those connections and destroying the, the food source um, and the yes. land. And yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Seth Katner, who's joining us from Kotzebue in Alaska right now. And he documents the traditional way of life in the Arctic in his books and articles that he's written and in his stunning photographs of the region. Seth's debut novel, Ordinary Wolves, explored the world of a white man raised in the Arctic who feels out of place in both the white and indigenous cultures. Seth's autobiography is called Shopping for Porcupine. His latest title further explores the beauty and the tensions of life in the northwest Alaskan Arctic. It's called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. We have links to his work at ricksteves.com radio. If I could just read something that you wrote, I mean, you, you've, you've really tuned into this. I guess there's a range that is uh, threatened, and you write... You wrote this for the National Parks Conservation Association a few years ago. The Brooks Range is too special, too valuable, too important for this greedy travesty. This is a large-scale, intact ecosystem in a world of shattered ones. This is home to the last great herds of caribou, to countless clear watersheds stretching on and on, to millions of acres of habitat for trillions of living things. Wow. So development, and this is in this particular case, it's a copper mining industry, right? Yeah, lo looming uh, today over us is this uh, proposed Ambler Road or Ambler Industrial Corridor that would come off of the Alaska Pipeline Road as a 200-mile industrial corridor straight into the Brooks Range and basically to my my home here and um, and bring a thousand trucks a week or or something along that corridor and giant open pit copper mines to the headwaters of these giant clear rivers like the Kobuk and the upper uh, tributaries mm. to the Kobuk. And, and all that would, uh, like I said earlier, affect the people and the connections to the land, but also just directly affect the Western Arctic caribou herd, which until recently was nearly half a million animals roaming this country, which is, you know, on par with the, the Serengeti and, and the last great herds on Earth. Oh. To have that threatened, uh, it's, I mean, if you live there and if you've grown up with it and if you appreciate the heritage and the connection of nature with humankind, 
it would be so important for people to go up there and and uh, take a hike with you and, and, and get a sense of this. Also, the threat of climate change. Talk about how climate change has... What are the tangible impacts of climate change today that you see from your sod hut there in the tundra? Um, well, Rick, the, the simplest thing to say is uh, that what we talked about, the seasons coming and going. And so summer, we're, we can't travel very far on the tundra because it's swampy and wet. But then traditionally come September or October, all that country would freeze and then we could walk and run our dog teams further and further and, and snow would come and we would travel mostly on ice. And um, with climate change, the falls are uh, a month later or more that we are sort of pinned down by slush and rain and ice starting to form and then remelting and it would be like if you got used to roads in the world and, and mm. traveled on roads, but they disappeared in the summer and you didn't know if they were going to come back. That's oh. what climate change has done for travel. The vegetation is on steroids. You know, we've got blueberry bushes that are towering now and so-called dwarf birch that are eight feet tall and, and spruce trees growing on the tundra and things are sloughing and melting as the permafrost is destroyed. And methane's bubbling up in the lakes. It's kind of a giant mess. Well, Seth Kantner, you have a, a very important connection with nature, living where and, and how you do. I understand you're a, a guide when people come to visit Kotzebue. Let's say I'm going to come and visit your town. Take me out to the, see the caribou, and, and uh, just let's close this discussion with what you would like me to experience and be impacted by when it comes to the caribou as, as such an integral part of the the whole natural ecosystem. That's a tough one. Um, Northern Alaska is so huge and uh, climate change is making the migrations uh, very unpredictable. So yes, I think I'll take your number down and call you when the caribou are flooding around both sides of Kotzebue. And if you come up at a random time, it's really hard to predict in what um, 200,000 square miles the caribou are going to be in. And then, uh, um, so things are unpredictable. As far as, uh, yeah, that's an unpredictable animal with a lot of changes taking place now. But yeah, you would fly north to Kotzebue and then probably charter a Cessna and fly further north and, and look for the animals. It's it's huge country and a really amazing landscape, but comes with its own extra large challenges. Well, Seth Kantner, thanks for writing your book, A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou, and also illustrating with with such beautiful photographs. Best wishes in your work. And again, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Rick. I really appreciate it. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.